Welcome to the GTR podcast channel and to the GTR Africa 2020 podcast. I'm Ted George, founder and chief narrative officer of Kleos Advisory. This year, GTR East Africa and GTR Africa took place digitally, as did most of this year's conferences. To give you a flavor of our discussions, I've selected excerpts from four sessions, two from each conference. The full sessions, plus all content from both conferences, are available on demand on GTR's digital conference platform. To register for free access, visit www.gtreview.com forward slash events. We start in East Africa with a panel I moderated entitled Identifying the Flows Driving East African Trade into the New Decade. My panelists were Nizrin Abuelez, Head of Africa Group at SNBC, Dev Anand Haman, Assistant Secretary General at Comesa, Graham Bright, Head of Compliance and Operations at Euro Exim Bank, and Nicholas Oliver, Head of Business Development and Co-Chair at NMS. We started by discussing the region's single most important trade and investment partner, China. China has built a dominating position in East Africa's trade flows, has invested heavily in its trade and telecoms infrastructure, and has lent generously to the region's governments. But there are signs that China is reining in its largesse. Is China retrenching in East Africa or just pausing for breath? First up, Graham Bright. Thank you. A difficult question, this one. From a political point of view, I, I watched a presidential spat last night uh, concerning Biden and Trump. Um, we don't know where that's going to go. And I think that, that could have a huge effect long term on how China views uh, the West. But also what we're seeing is that China are, fine, are, as you say, retrenching and slowing down in the way that they are operating at the moment and actually saying, can we start making our own things a little bit better? Can we do things internally that much better? I think there was a diktat also coming that they would almost be more nationalistic, isolationistic, and also protectionistic from other countries at the moment and say, let's make it at home as well. Let's protect our own economy. Let's change the way that we're working inside to protect ourselves as opposed to the largesse they had with other countries previously. So their international standing, I think, is, is on slight hold. I think it's, it's, it's about, can we retool ourselves? We don't want to do any imports necessarily because they're still a major importer. Can we look at new, our own natural resources? Can we use them a different way? The way that China is working generally is let's solve some internal problems now. Let's just stop, slow down, and then look at how we can be more effective and perhaps a, a better citizen to other countries moving forward as well. It's not just about investment in Africa, and we will know about the way that airports, ports, and particular infrastructure projects and parts of even India, et cetera, are almost owned by, by China today. So there's, there is a real problem with the way that goods come in, goods that get manufactured there, no local people are involved in the process, and the whole thing is almost creating a small China uh, satellite, which restricts trade totally. So I think it's very much about the saving face at the moment and retrenching, let's get our house in order and see then if we've got the right goods at the right time, but make sure our home economy is served as well in the right way. Thank you. Yes, I think that makes a lot of logical sense. I think one of the big concerns about a lot of the Chinese involvement in Africa is that there's been a sort of exchange, you know, commodities are accessed for markets in return for infrastructure, but all the deals are done in China. 
between Chinese companies who then send out their own laborers, it's almost like a separate enclave uh, existing within the African economy. So that's definitely something to be addressed. But of course, they have built the infrastructure now and they built the entire digital infrastructure. So I would expect the next wave will be digital. Uh, moving to you, Nick, uh, what are you hearing on the ground about the Chinese in East Africa? China is, is a big deal uh, in, in African uh, infrastructure and still is. Um, but we do see a change. We're seeing less um, competition with, uh, from China. We're seeing uh, less of a Chinese push. Uh, what we are seeing is that what is there is getting better. And so um, uh, less but better, um, I, I think, is, is, is where they're going. But I also think that the, the, the local governments uh, are, are seeing writing on the wall. Um, they can't put themselves into this much debt and then not employ, as you've already said, local people. So they're writing into the infrastructure contract that they must employ local people. You can't employ, you can't import um, your workforce. Visas, work visas, permits, et cetera, are getting much harder uh, to get. I think Zambia is, is a leading example of this at the moment. Uh, we have a quota of how many people we can bring in from outside of, uh, of Zambia on our contracts. Um, we, don't even, we don't get to the quota, but it does mean that Chinese companies coming in wanting to report 50, 60, 70% of their workforce now can't. Uh, and I think that is making a, a, an effect. Uh, and I think it's making a good effect. It is opening up the markets on infrastructure. And I think it is forcing companies to, to do better, better product and better for the, for the local workforce and the local economy. That's great. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, Dev, from the perspective of Comessa as well, how do you see the relationship with China in terms of trade and investment developing over the coming months? Have we seen a pause in, in Chinese engagement with Africa? I would say that from where we stand, that Af uh, China is still a major partner of Africa in the development of infrastructure because there's still a lot of gaps in the development of infrastructure. Our latest indication show that we will need around maybe $900 billion for the next five years. They are really moving in. Maybe what they are, we have seen is that they are not moving in in terms of commodities now, but they are moving more in terms of the infrastructure development. But also what has happened at the African Union level, African Union, there is this united position that Africa as one, we should be negotiating such and such terms with China. I think maybe that's the reason why today there is some reduction of uh, people or workforce coming from China. But I would say that uh, China has got a big vision of Africa. They know that they can't take over. But through the infrastructure, if you look at the, in Zambia itself, like what Nick has said, the airport fully constructed by the, by the Chinese. You have got certainly you have got what to call Silicon Valleys that have been done in many countries in Africa. If you look at Kenya, the Silicon Valleys of Kenya has been largely contributed by China. Going down to, to, to the ocean island, a lot of cities, satellite cities, fully digital, Chinese have been constructing them. So they, I believe they being business oriented, they will not come and, and invest in your country if they have not seen a business opportunity. And that's the reason why we as a bloc, we have been uh, advising government that 
negotiate as a bloc. Instead of negotiating individually per country, negotiate as a bloc. We should not only be working with China. We know that China is big in terms of the support they give. But let's work, like, for example, we do continue working with the European Union, the BRICS. And let's not forget, India is also coming. So China, we depend on them. Let's put it this way. We want them, but we need to really define our boundaries well. Thanks, Dev. I'd like to turn now to Nizrin. Uh, firstly, if you have a view on China, but on this question of other significant partners for East Africa, could you talk a little bit about the importance of Japan? Uh, you work, after all, for a Japanese bank and have extensive business in East Africa. My views on China do not differ markedly from what has already been said. So it's clearly a very important partner to the continent, but I don't believe it's a question of competition. We've all talked about the infrastructure gap for years now. There is a need for more partners in the continent. And in terms of Japan, Japan has been a partner for Africa for, for decades, starting from the 1970s. And you have some companies that have been um, in Africa, Japanese companies that have been in the continent for over 100 years. So it's a very long-standing relationship. However, more recently, the partnership has been between Japan, Inc. and, and Africa has been um, more emphasized. And you are familiar with, the, with TICA, the Tokyo International Conference for African Development, which is held every three years. The first, the first time outside Japan, it was held in Kenya in 2016, and then it was held in Yokohama in 2019. But I mentioned that because there, there were about 42 um, heads of states attending from Africa. And in total, there were about 4,000 to 5,000 attendees in the conference, but that shows the importance of the relationship and also the desire to, to enhance or to strengthen this relationship, which is reciprocated. It's not only from the Japanese side, but also from the African side. Now, the Japanese companies have been increasing their presence. They've been expanding their presence and their activities. And we all know that they pride themselves on the quality and on the technology um, of, of what they do. So um, you will see them feature on in, in uh, infrastructure projects. If we look at the Mozambique LNG, our clients were there. We were there as a bank also supporting them. The Nakala Corridor, renewable projects, the wind farm in South Africa and in Egypt and in Morocco and many others. Um, so the interest from the Japanese side is, is increasing. And by extension for us as a bank, uh, we support our clients and we support also international companies that are doing business in, um, in the continent. So the interest is there. There is room for lots of other partners, I think, for, for the continent to come in and do business. And, you know, last year in TCAD, uh, Japan mentioned that in the previous three years, there was about $20 billion in investment, private sector investments across the continent. And it's expected that in the next round of three years, the, this investment will, will increase even more. What we have seen over the past six months, I mentioned some transactions that have been closed and Japanese companies were involved, and we as a bank also were involved in there has been a slowdown, but it doesn't mean at all that there is a radical shift in the interest now or a step back. No, it's more of a, a pause, if you like. And, and I, I suspect that we will see some sort of uh, change in the structure in terms of the partnerships that the continent has, in terms of the areas where these partnerships can, can help. That was Nizrin Abuelez, head of Africa Group at SNBC. Next up, a panel discussing the question, can global financiers stay relevant to East African trade? On my panel were Jack Kitch, Head of Structured Finance for Sub-Saharan Africa at Nokia, Lanre Oloniniyi, co-founder of Orbit Capital, 
Mariam Nyankamara, Managing Director of Wilburn Trade, and Timothy Muchiri, Director and Head of Distribution at Greensill Capital. I started by asking Jack whether banks have shown themselves up to the challenge presented by the pandemic, or have they failed to meet the needs of their clients? This global pandemic has come with its own challenges. There is tightness in liquidity. I mean, if you look at hard currency uh, supply, this is tight in, in some of these markets. But when you look at banks specifically, and the question as to whether they have been up to the challenge, Yes, most of the banks that we interact with when you're trying to arrange financing for uh, most of our clients do recognize the fact that the need for financing has actually increased uh, because there are shortages now everywhere and institutions are struggling to get access to funding. So they have been loaded with a lot of requests uh, uh, for funding. And unfortunately, uh, it seems many of the banks that we are in touch with are somehow still stuck in their traditional approach to, to funding. If, if anything, in, in spite of all these requests for funding coming their way, they have prioritized uh, putting their money uh, in safe security. So they would go for uh, sovereign bonds, uh, the government securities. They have, in, in some cases, actually moved away money from the equities. And, mm -hmm. and so in, in that regard, and this has actually been a, a conversation that has been ongoing and some of the direct feedback we are getting from the banks, I mean, they are saying that uh, the risk profile of most of, the, of, of their clients or most of the institutions that they would be extending credit to have really been uh, impacted negatively by this pandemic. And they are, as a result of that, becoming very selective in terms of which institutions they are going to extend credit to. They have not really been uh, quick to adapt to the needs of the institutions in this environment. And, and, and I dare say that they've not really been up to the, uh, to the challenge. Unfortunately, there would be other uh, institutions uh, like Greensill that is represented here, uh, the fintechs, and some of the development finance institutions that have now come up and are willing to take a little bit more risk and take advantage of the opportunities that are coming as a result of, of, of this pandemic. And now narrowing down specifically to the telecommunication sector, because this pandemic has changed the, the way in which people do things, I mean, people are, uh, are teleconferencing, working remotely most of the time, most of the operators have seen the need in investing uh, more uh, in, 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 on, on their networks to increase capacity and reduce the congestion that they experience in their networks. And doing so requires a lot of CapEx investment. And whereas some of them would outrightly uh, look for loan facilities or just let's say financing, long-term financing uh, to achieve this, some of them have actually come back to us and asked for some relaxed payment terms. Some are asking for 12 months, some are asking for 24 months, uh, whatever we can offer uh, to give them some relief so that they have some uh, liquidity to invest in their network. So this pandemic has brought some opportunities within the telecom sector, which we see that the banks have not really been up to the task in terms of fulfilling the, the, the financing needs uh, of these telcos. 
That's great. Thank you very much, Jack. Um, Lanray, do you find that's very much the picture yourself as well? Do you think banks have really not been up to the task or have been a bit slow to the game? I think it's a case of when you speak to most of the banks, um, and I'm sure we have a couple of listening here, um, you know, it's been a case of survival first, right? So they've all essentially shrunk and, you know, protecting their balance sheet. Of course, you know, you know, Tim and I were discussing this on a previous panel and they, they have, you know, certain capital um, requirements and, you know, ratio requirements they need to meet. So they've gone into essentially conservation mode. But it's not to say that, you know, prior to the crisis, they were, they were, they were not on the trajectory of essentially retreating from, retreating from the market because of all the regulations, you know, the battle two, three, and all the fun things they have to deal with that we're all familiar with. Um, but also they've been focusing on the, you know, the cream of the market, i.e. the larger corporates, right? right? So which is kind of, again, you know, just on the pure economics terms, that's where they make the most of their returns, right? So it's, you know, more secure lending to, um, to, to, to the bigger corporates and um, those are, you know, the, the, the larger clients that they have. And of course, this then creates a gap in the market that, you know, the SMEs get crushed out of. It's not just the SMEs, even the middle market companies are struggling to access funding from the banks. So yes, you know, I think it's a natural reaction, but then of course, with that creates opportunities for the likes of um, Mariam and the likes of um, um, Green Seal um, non-bank finance institutions who are essentially trying to fill in this gap. Whilst the banks are sort of retreating from the market, the DFIs were coming in, especially like the likes of AfriXIM and the African Development Banks, et cetera, to try and provide liquidity into the African market are going through these traditional channels of the banks, mm-hmm. right? And providing them with the capital, the liquidity to essentially online. But that is not making its way, again, not even to the bottom of the pyramid, not even to the middle of the pyramid. It's still staying at the top. And in most, in some cases, um, we'll mention any countries, but, you know, the, the, cap- the capital is essentially flowed into, you know, the directions in terms of going into other markets um, where the banks are essentially playing treasury, treasury games. Sure. Thank you, Lenny. And we will get on to that. And, and Tim, your views on this one as well. Do you think the banks are managing to rise to the challenge? The landscape has changed completely for banks uh, since the global financial crisis. So there's been a lot of regulation that's come in. Uh, right now, with the changes in IFRS, they have to provide earlier and to a larger extent. And then there's Basel and all these other things. So naturally, if you had a limited pool of liquidity, you would try and put it to where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And the reality is that most of the times that's not with the SMEs or with the middle market players. So, uh, and then also there's all these new requirements that are coming on KYC and so on. So, um, I mean, the intention is not to bash banks, but I think that's just a reality. Those are the cards that they've been dealt and they have to make the most of them. That's where some of the solutions that we've been talking about on this conference, you know, supply chain finance, distributor finance, and so on. Uh, If you find clever ways of doing them, then maybe... Uh, instead of lending directly to the SME or the mid-market corporate, uh, you park that risk with a large corporate and that way it becomes attractive to the banks. That's one way of doing it. And the other way is, you know, just um, getting a little bit innovative in terms of uh, how you approach the market. So I would say there have to be a few shifts in the market for the appetite really to go, you know, down the credit curve, uh, you know, to the long tail of the supply chains of our of, of the clients. Uh, but it's not something that will come naturally, uh, just based on the environment in which banks operate in uh, right now. Thanks very much, Tim. Uh, Marianne, can I get your views on this? Have banks been working hard enough to get financing to where it's needed? What I would say is actually while actually central banks across East Africa were undertaking additional monetary policies, 
I mean, measures to protect their economies. We've also seen local banks that were also offering extension of credit terms. I mean, this is all linked to the pandemic, credit holidays and moratorium to their clients. I mean, to react humanly to the pandemic impact, but also to help the customers while at the same time allowing them to be sustainable. But on the other side, when I look at actually the, the global financial market, we have seen international bank tightening, their risk appetite for Eastern, East African banks, making it difficult for these banks to meet their clients' payment requirement. Yes, dollar liquidity was very tight and expensive. I mean, to make it affordable to the SMEs and local corporates in order to meet also their, their payment demands. And we know these financing are important actually for local corporates. So yes, I think the financing gap was, the financing gap was clearly widened. Non-bank, I mean, financial institutions are stepping in to fill in the gap. And I would say, yes, bank were there on the local corporate side, but I haven't seen it that much on the financial, I mean, more, on the global financial market. And that's why the NBA files are also here to help on that. That was Mariam Kamara, Managing Director of Wilburn Trade. Now, let's widen our perspective and move on to GTR Africa, which takes in the whole continent. We start with a panel entitled Intra-Regional Flows and South-South Cooperation. Can Africa ever be truly free to trade? The panel was moderated by Shannon Manders, Editorial Director of GTR, and her panelists were Barnes Kalenzi, Head of Business Intelligence at Bank of Kigali, Stuart Mumba, Country Manager at Atlas Mara, Parik Tulsidas, Senior Executive of Treasury and Markets at Afrasia Bank, and Carl Chiawa, Head of International Banking at Bank One. Shannon opened the panel with this question. Are we seeing greater collaboration across African banks now? And to what extent is the Continental Free Trade Agreement actually going to increase that? It's a, it's a good question. Um, maybe I'll put it over to you first, Carl. I'll give you the backdrop. Malawi is an agricultural country and they export tobacco as a primary crop. And they have six months where they have cash rich in terms of tobacco, uh, dollars when they're exporting. And the other six months, they're really um, struggling with forex and, and forex availability in the market. So what we did in Mauritius, because we have access to uh, relatively cheap dollars compared to the rest of the continent, we came up with a structure where we invited continental banks, including Bonas's bank, uh, Bank of Kigali, and we've got banks out of uh, Mauritius as well as uh, the UK uh, and Nairobi actually coming to support a $100 million club deal where we actually do a swap for the Central Bank of Malawi to allow them that six months to bridge the gap of forex availability. And this is, I think, a fantastic testament to that. You've got African banks who understand an African, uniquely African problem and come up with a solution to another African uh, uh, country. And it's working very well. The government of Malawi is very happy. The central bank is very happy. Uh, the banks are also well covered and it's uh, wrapped up with um, a credit insurance from an African insurer called uh, African Trade Insurance. And this gives comfort to other lenders that you've been uh, rated, uh, wrapped with an um, investment grade rate wrapping for otherwise a very difficult credit to do uh, because Malawi as a, a sovereign is not rated and the central bank is not rated. But so in normal circumstances, you couldn't do the deal. But the fact that you've got African countries and African bankers who understand the situation and understand the risks and able to box the risk, um, you've got five countries involved coming to help one African country. So that, that collaboration is happening and we're no longer having to wait for the World Bank or the IMF to come up with these solutions. Uh, to add on to what Carl uh, has mentioned, I think we're also seeing certain uh, African or regional banks 
acting as finance intermediaries in the trade finance process. We'll see the likes of AfriExim, TDB, uh, MCB, and some of the Mauritian banks opening uh, trade lines with the local African banks. So banks can open LCs can, and they get confirmed quickly. These uh, banks are also building relationships with the, some of the multinational companies that are being approached to import products, especially oil products. And it's been a seamless experience. So the more we do it, the more experience we get, the more information we share, especially if I know that Carl's Bank can sort uh, out my bank in a certain area and we, we can approach and communicate and build relationships. I think that's key. Yeah, I guess that's a key follow-up question, uh, maybe to you, Carl, because this is one, this is maybe one transaction, but how do you how do you scale that? Like moving away from a working on a transaction to transaction basis to working on a sort more sort of macro scale and, and enhancing that relationship for the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I think, Shannon, this is where uh, forums like GTR Africa actually, uh, I think, add a lot of value. Uh, I think there's a saying in business which says that people do business with people that they know and people that they like, right? So now I know all the people in this panel. I know Parik, I know Stuart, I know Barnabas. It's easy for me to pick up the call and say, hey, guys, there's this deal. Do you guys want to be part of it? Because they've got a track record with me. They trust, they build trust. You know, you can be able to scale this into Zambia if the government of Zambia needs the same thing. Actually, Barnabas will tell you we've done the exact same thing for the Central Bank in Rwanda and it's working fantastically well. And I believe that uh, as the more we interact in these forums, you build these networks, you build these relationships, you're able to scale this. So it's not a hobby and it's not a once-off, it becomes a program. But it's not an IMF program or a World Bank program. It's purely commercially driven by commercial bankers who have been raised on the continent. Thanks, Carl. Stuart, um, you're, you're nodding in agreement. Do you have something to add there? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, I, I, I totally agree with uh, Carl and, and Barnabas. But I, I also just want to challenge my colleagues, uh, Parikh and, and Carl, to say I think we need a bit more bravery from you guys, especially to venture into areas where the European banks and the American banks wouldn't venture into, right? So I think that's the only ask. Otherwise, uh, the collaboration has improved. But we need a bit more bravery from uh, uh, Mauritius. Sure, actually, Stuart, I'll, I'll throw it back to you because the way I view it is there's nothing that substitutes local knowledge, right? So we would rely on you uh, on the ground to be able to decode some of the risk and bring the facts to light and go beyond the headlines that we see and you know to tell the real story. Once everybody's comfortable around the story, I'm sure there's enough brilliant minds around the table to come up with the structure. And you're right, I think Mauritian banks are really eyeing that space where most of these global correspondent banks are actually de-risking or, or scaling back their operations in Africa. Some of them are very left. Some of them are not seeing it as a profitable venture anymore. It's a marginal, uh, I would say they, they say it's, it's, it's a rounding error on their balance sheet, right? But for us, it's huge revenue opportunity, right? So we can actually come in because we're from Africa and we're off Africa. And I think Parik will tell you this. I think the, the mentality in Mauritius is we're onshore and offshore Africa. So it gives us that little leverage and advantage that we're the last investment grade country left in Africa. So we still attract, you know, quite significant liquidity and cheaper liquidity. But the fact that we know the market and we're comfortable and we've got people like you on the ground that we can pick up the call and say, hey, I read this. Is this true? Or give me more color around this. That way I, do, I go beyond the headlines and actually form an opinion which is educated. Uh, I think it's about awareness as well. It's important that 
the continent understands what is Mauritius all about. I think over the years we've built what we call here the global business sector. So we have a lot of foreign currency liquidity. And what we've done over the last few years is trying to be a sort of the lender to banks, right? Uh, because we don't have access directly to the local markets, so we can't go directly to a corporate, let's say, in Zambia or Malawi or Kenya or whatever. So what we do is we work a lot more with the banks and we lend them money so that they can do a better form of trade finance uh, lending or even corporate lending on their side. And hopefully cheaper as well, because we sit with a lot of uh, you know excess liquidity on the island. I think it's the same story for Bukal and for some of the other banks. I mean, we've got a clear Africa strategy, and this is what we want to do more and more going forward. So it's important to create that awareness as well, so that you know exactly, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we need to know what the different economies and the different countries are good at doing, and then leverage on their strength. Thanks, Mark. We hear a lot of talk about South-South flows with um, the example of China dominating, but to what extent is their African bank engagement with local banks from other emerging markets? And where are the other hotspots? Uh, to be honest with you, African banks are more focused on trying to build relations within Africa at the moment. Um, and like I say, trying to take that space where the large global correspondent banks are actually leaving and think that's a space to play. In terms of forming relationships with other regions, I think that's a dominant uh, position of the correspondent banks. It's very hard for me to go directly to China and, and start a relationship with a bank in China or in, in India or in New Zealand, right? That's where I think those guys play well. We should play well in our space and we should play to win in our space. And I don't think that's a space we're ever going to win because the infrastructure required and the data analytics behind that that's required, we don't have the investment to do that yet. So. Why don't we focus on what we can do and what we do best, which is to build the relationship within the African banks. And I think GTR 2020 is one of those uh, platforms. It's not the only one, but I think it's a key piece where we as bankers can actually come in, start to know each other, start to like each other, and then we do business with each other. Yeah, I just want to add something there. I mean, interestingly, we've uh, recently done something in terms of China-Africa trade where we have actually uh, confirmed uh, LCs that were opened by Chinese banks into Africa, actually. So that was interesting. But then also we've seen instances recently where, you know, we're helping corporates. I think it was fuel from Mozambique to Zimbabwe. So finance that uh, the logistics around it. So there's a lot of more now, I feel, coming into intracontinent. So we see a lot of trade that's starting to happen between the countries as well. And again, you know, uh, this is where Mauritius plays an interesting role in terms of, you know, the ability to finance uh, with the excess liquidity that we have. So again, I come back to the same thing, which is awareness. We need to build that awareness. And it's important that we talk to other bankers, uh, like we're doing now on this platform, so that they understand when they have opportunities, they can think of us that was Parik Tulsidas from Afrasia Bank. Time for one more panel to finish off, discussing the question, how can Africa reap the benefits of innovation and digitization? My panelists were Srinath Keshavan, Executive Director at Trade Assets, Fortune Gweru, Head of Africa Origination at Greensill, Aubrey Hruby, Senior Fellow at the Africa Center of the Atlantic Council, Samia Neji, founder and chief executive officer of DLT Ledgers, and Vinod Madhavan, group head of trade at Standard Bank. 
During our discussion, we touched on perhaps the hottest topic in tech, which is data. We are entering the age of big data. Machine learning and AI are growing ever more powerful. Cloud computing and IoT are connecting everything together. And yet, we also have concerns over the security and integrity of our data. I started by asking Samir whether these concerns were blocking the sharing of data where it could be mutually beneficial. I find uh, the sharing of data, you know, is something, you know, which none of the organizations are quite, uh, you know, take it very easy, you know, in these days. Everyone finds data as an important asset and try to hold it to themselves. So collaborating on this data, you know, can bring down the risk profile of, you know, whatever uh, flows, you know, which we are talking about on financing. So our, one of our experiences uh, during these times were, uh, you know, how we could collaborate, you know, or how we could uh, drive the collaboration of different uh, financial institutions uh, in sharing of data. This is not a, a simple task, you know, because this has not been traditionally the way which we used to do business with. So, you know, we had a massive project in Singapore with 35 plus banks uh, in terms of sharing of data and uh, trying to see how we can uh, reduce the risk in terms of uh, financing so that we can avoid double financing and uh, you know several different scenarios you know which we can see that it doesn't happen so that we can keep the liquidity you know from a you know from a economic uh, you know uh, framework and we can reduce the impact in terms of losing you know uh, you know for many of these banks you know you would have heard of a couple of banks who had left trade finance in the last you uh, know few months you know so how does it happen? You know, it happens because, you know, we are reluctant to share the data. And again, coming back to what Srinath was saying, the visibility is one part of it and transparency, you know, which comes from the source countries like Africa. Um, but the money flows and the paper money goes from capital centers of the world, you know, which gets bought into these banks in those countries and, you know, dissipated across to the, you know, community. And, uh, you know, th that's how the flow happens. So it doesn't happen for a country alone. So we had an amazing experience and which was recently launched, which is called a trade flow, uh, you know, trade dog validation, you know, which checks on the trade flows on all the way from the BL side and, you know, all the, uh, all the aspects of it. But a single bank trying to look at it, you know, or a single organization trying to look at it, you know, the data is very silo. So when multiple banks can share and collaborate in terms of their information, that becomes useful for everybody. Thanks, Samir. Uh, Fortune, if I could move to you, how is Greensill using data to manage its trade business? One of the things we're, that we're starting to actually do is to create a program that sees, that weights the significance of each element of a value chain for each of the clients that we're looking at across the globe. And what we have found is that you can use different hierarchies in terms of if this one person fails, if this one company fails, this is a predictor of failure within that industry or within a section of the economy. And what are the contagion effects of that? That is work that we're actually proactively working on right now, because as we're entering new markets, especially as we're looking at Africa, we're saying, okay, you know, what is the best way for us to lead in terms of, you know, picking new clients and who are the clients who are the right ones to give us the most um, impact in terms of helping out the supply chains. So for us, there is like a whole data team that is busy writing code right now, analyzing um, the movement of cash, the movement of invoices, the movement of goods to be able to have predictive analysis. That's great. Thanks. And Srinath as well, from the perspective of trade assets as well, how important is data to the success of your model? It's extremely important. I happen to be a student of statistics. 
Uh, and so this is a matter that's close to my heart, particularly in relation to trade assets. Uh, the, the data is, is, is a very significant part of what we do because based on the market information on transactions that we have over our platform, we are able to do some data analytics and then share that with our customers in order to be able to explain what trends are and you know how risk appetite is shifting, pricing, stuff like that. So that's really central to our existence. And so I just cannot overemphasize the importance of data for our business. Thank you, Srinath. Vinod as well. I mean, uh, as one of the incumbent banks, banks for many years were the main repositories of data. In fact, you can say it was one of your inbuilt advantages, but obviously times are changing. How is it changing the way that your bank is actually dealing with data now? A lot of banks are going through the process of identifying data as a key component slash resource so that at least we start breaking down the silos within ourselves, within the same institution and across the institution. I always like to think of this from the point of view of the clients, right? I mean, I always said that the corporates, and this applies in a strange way even to the retail customer, right? But corporates, particularly, what they are asking of all players, and I'm not just saying banks, it's any, any fintech player, they, they want visible proof that they're, they're kind of the person sitting across a Zoom call these days understands them, helps them manage risk, and helps them grow. That's all, right? I mean, that's my simplistic view. If I'm a corporate, I'm looking towards an FI or a bank to say, do you really understand me? Do you, are you able to help me grow? And help me grow in, a, in, a, in an appropriate manner so that I don't kind of lose uh, my capital in, in two years. In the past, a lot of it used to be relying on relationships. It was around, does my relationship manager know me? It's a personal connection. I think that is still required. I, I belong to the school where I don't think that'll get substituted. But what is happening is the ABCDs is coming in. And what is the ABCDs? It's not the usual examples. It's AI, blockchain, cloud I feel is very important, right? And the fact that data, right? My take is that these technologies, data being one of them, enable institutions and enable an ecosystem to actually understand the counterparty clearly, help them manage risk through all kinds of things. And you mentioned machine learning. There are fintechs out there, such as TradeSun or TradeStream, who actually have used machine learning and OCR to be able to check for document discrepancies, right? Something that is what used to keep me as a trade practitioner awake at night. I mean, what is my fear? My fear is that the poor ops person who got on the wrong side of the bed missed a discrepancy and kind of accepted the documents, right? Basically, that operational risk will pretty much close down the business. One would argue that some of the reasons why the losses are happening is because of that. And Aubrey, your two pennies on data and the importance of it for trade and investment. Many, many startups have uh, existed, operated well globally with data as a, a revenue line and a significant market for data in, in, uh, in buying and selling and ad revenue, et cetera. While we think there's potential for that in African markets, we're really not seeing it yet. Most of the startups that we see are doing something else. Yes, they have valuable data, but because of the low ad spending uh, in the region overall, it's hard to monetize that data in a meaningful way. Um, and so you don't necessarily have as many businesses as you would see that, are, that have data as their core asset that they're buying and selling, right? There are a lot of businesses that are doing something else and then have valuable data. But because of that, it's fairly siloed. Um, and I think the biggest repositories of data that may be interesting for the digital ecosystem are the, are the telcos, 
mm -hmm. um, and how you access that telco data and you know partnerships with the telcos among startup community are really critical for that. So I think we're a long way still from having data as a significant driver of, of revenue and growth for companies on the continent, but we know that there's a lot of valuable data out there. So that's the space we're sitting in. And that data is not only valuable for consumers locally or people making financial decisions, but it's valuable for external uh, investors as well. So it's kind of unlocking the data into the, from the little pools that it is now into some kind of mineable ocean, but we're not there yet. No, absolutely. And I think the incredible thing about Africa and data is people who don't know Africa very well always tend to say, oh, the data is terrible. Not at all. It's fantastic. It's just it's not available. It's on spreadsheets and it's on mobile phones or it's in people's heads, you know, so a way of getting to, to access to that data is the key. And Samir, do you want to add a few more ideas on, uh, on data? Traditionally, you know, we, we used to run reports and analytics and, you know, so the data volumes were very less. So in our platform, like, you know, two years back when, you know, we run a blockchain platform for trade digitization. A single trade flow from Africa to Indonesia, passing through Singapore or Australia, uh, it has around 9,000 transactions, you know, or transaction checkpoints, you know, which comes into play, whether it is documents or whether it is a bank confirmance or any of the act which comes into it. So you, you can't, like the traditional world, you can't actually extract them as a report and show it in front of them. So without machine learning, you know, we cannot build the right scenarios and give the question and answer kind of a model, you know, for risk related, uh, you know, philosophies or, you know, whatever the customer or the bank is looking at. Now, I agree with Aubrey that uh, the maturity of the markets have not come into a stage where they can really process that data, you know, to make, uh, you know, valuable business decisions. Samir Neji from DLT Ledgers. Well, that's all we have time for. Thank you to all the panelists for a rich and wide-ranging discussion. The full sessions from both conferences are available on demand on the GTR digital conference platform. Register for free access on the GTR website, www.gtreview.com forward slash events. You can also subscribe on the website to GTR's podcasts and monthly newsletter. Thanks for listening.